From beyond the farthest reaches of our galaxy they come. Two brains pulsing with a strange energy. These space brains come to share their love of science fiction movies. Welcome to Space Brains, the show where we joy watch sci-fi movies and then talk about what was good and what was great. I'm sorry, and this is Mark. Hiya, it's episode 82, and we are talking about science fiction film Elysium. Came out in 2013. In this episode, we will reveal what we thought about the film, the ins and outs of narrative and film language, plus a nice deep dive into Elysium, rich person circle satellite planet thingy which might be the piece of science that the filmmakers are proposing they propose a lot of science in this film <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of different awful uh, not awful or oh, yeah maybe awful science some of, and, some of a bit awful it was science that's equated into awful behavior i suppose by some humans uh this film is directed by neil blonkarf and also he wrote the script who, of course, we've looked at previously uh, with District 9 and on our last episode, Chappie. Chappie. But, of course, this one here is not in South Africa. No, not at all. No. And so we so, don't have to offend people in this episode. No, well, you know, if I could <laughs> with, if I could even do a passable sort of Latin American yeah. accent, I'd try because, you know, I'm, I like to live dangerously. Yeah. But I just don't live... I'm not, I'm not going to live that dangerously because my efforts would be very even more poor than my usual efforts now you might be spoiling the film because they might want it to be set uh, in yeah, south okay. africa well, so, so we do it, need it to is warn. a spoiler we're going to talk about everything here go back watch <laughs> one, the film one, warning one, warning one, one. and then tune back in and listen to what we have to say and so, not how we say it so it's not set in south africa <laughs> we no, can give that away spoiler <laughs> one is set in los angeles yeah in a, in a sort of uh, hypothetical Los Angeles in the future. Elysium is about all the rich people deciding that Earth is not good enough, clean enough, and they build this satellite city above Earth where they live in peace and harmony and clean air and with amazing futuristic technology, whilst the rest of us slaves, labourers back on planet Earth basically live in filth and you know, work for them for the grind. Well, yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah. So that's the setup. And then we have our hero of the story, Max, who is put in pretty dire circumstances and then needs to get to Elysium to save his own life. But in doing that, also possibly saving the whole planet. Discovers the life. beauty of Earth. <laughs> yeah. That's it, actually. Sorry, that's a better synopsis, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's lovely. What's the number one takeaway apart from the beauty of Earth? Sorry. The number one takeaway is that apparently wealthy people in the future will all live like uh, old money US <laughs> wealthy people. Yeah, they're all white wealthy people, aren't they? Yeah. It's what uh, It sort of struck me as yeah, all the scenes where they have, they're all sort of wearing, well, yeah, what you 
stereotypically imagine uh, as an old money US. Yeah. Uh, wealthy like people would be wearing, they're wearing blazers. and Where's Musky, eh? Where's the Elon Musk in there, in. right? Like, where's he in this place? Well, see, where's also the people who don't find it entertaining just to hang around in like cocktail parties with carrying yeah. glasses of wine everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no. Like there, there's that dude right now in uh, like he's living in South America and he's worth like $42 trillion. Like he invented some sort of Bitcoin thingy, another one of them. And he's just a young dude, like doesn't wear shoes, just lives in like this habitat. Has a, His poor PA has to fly from the States down to where he is to help him. And he's just kind of... Because he's not really even interested in money, no. Even okay. though he's worth about forty-two trillion dollars or something. Chuck like, a couple of my but, way. but the thing is, he would probably. But maybe he wouldn't go and live there. I guess maybe he wouldn't. Maybe just live on the filth on Earth. Well, maybe not. I know. I mean, because yeah, if I <laughs> if I had the money, I, I wouldn't be getting around. I, or maybe be, he would build his own Elysium. But where where are the artists? Where yeah. are the creative you know designers who? Where's Mick Jagger spending their their money uh, on you know? Designing and developing, and, and just sort of have, maybe the thing is that we don't see them because, yeah, that would be kind of boring simply <laughs> to see some dude in his yeah. garage chiseling away at a lump of marble, mm. creating a statue of his dearly departed golden retriever or something. Once again, if Blonkoff wants to, you know, get out and reach and answer these really tough space brain questions, well, we're happy to have you on the show. Yeah, I- <laughs> anytime. I can only imagine he was trying to indicate that these wealthy people had total luxury. Yeah. So much so that they could devote a few days to walking around at a garden party Mm. holding a glass of wine in their little blazers and khakis. And I mean, isn't it just, I suppose it it actually wasn't, it's funny, isn't it? It's called Elysium, but not much of the film is on Elysium. And uh, I think it's just that sort of metaphor, isn't it, of, you know, absolute indulgence while Mm. the rest of society is the ones churning away working basically making their lifestyle exist um and and it's also it has been done in other stories not even uh you know this is sort of a version of it but you know that idea of the upper class being quite distant you know and i think also as a writer he probably was trying to make them you know, obviously upper class yeah, and, yes. and, and also like, yeah, they're a bit haughty, you know, the haughty torty, you know, oh, we're better than everyone. And we do sit around in garden parties and we're not even going to finish our expensive champagne, you know, and like the young woman in the bikini just goes and get like hops on the health bed and just gets like a little touch up, you know what I mean? Whilst sick children, you know, then you cut to the juxtaposition back on earth. It's mm. like sick children that can't even walk or whatever are not allowed <laughs> into those health beds. So I think it's like that that contrast, isn't it, in the story to really yeah, divide I, I, us I think so the because we see the, the upper class people, they're just standing around and going, yeah. oh, 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 oh. Mm. And then you, you cut back down and you, the people are lining up to get onto a work bus yeah. and everyone's hustling and bustling yeah. and moving quickly. They yeah. don't have enough time. The doctors and nurses are constantly, you know, run off their feet. I, yeah, that's, they didn't really imagine too hard on that one, did they? They just kind of looked at a normal hospital and went, <laughs> yeah. I think that's just, just Perth Hospital. We'll it? just yeah. replicate this yeah, and yeah. say it's a dystopian future. <laughs> no, it's now. But you would have noticed just because you've touched on that and because we've been watching, uh, you know, District 9 and Chappie and and then this one, that that's a very visual look of Blancas. Oh, it's the, like very busy. And that hard um, white light. Yeah and, yeah. and and I mean, there's other bits we'll get into that when we go through the 
plot, but well, I just wanted to focus on that. Like you're right, like a, a modern day crazy, even in a Western world like Australia, the way our hospitals are overrun, overcrowded, the doctors are doing the best they can. Uh, this was taken a little bit more to the extreme, uh, but at the same time, maybe not that extreme, you know, ambulance ramping and stuff, but that's a style of his, isn't it? It's like everywhere is crowded and uh, and there's a hustle that people have to have, mm. you know, and mm. then you throw in the sci-fi element like a, a robot. Yeah. You know, that's kind of his little trademark, I think. So, well, tell me though, is this a movie of hope? Is it a warning or is it an experiment? I went experiment from the idea of this to me really seems like a what if. So what if all the rich people had enough of the dirty planet, whatever, you know, the, the, the dying earth and just decided to shoot off into space. So it's kind of like, because he's answered it by saying you have this major class division, you know, the lower class and the upper class, the upper class have the advantages of technology, better health, you know, better, you know, air quality. Whereas then the lower class have, you know, the, the dirty streets, the broken homes, the high level of crime, Mm. Um, they also have like authority overexerting itself. So that's his what if, because of course you could say the same thing. Like what if all the rich people pissed off into space? You could go, hey, it'd be pretty cool. Like maybe there'd be a bit more equality on earth. Like as you said before, where are the artists? Because I also thought the what if could be like, yeah, what if all the rich people pissed off on earth and then they didn't, they stopped digging up the planet and stopped doing that? Maybe environmentalists, because obviously they're not wealthy, they wouldn't be up there. They would actually go, hey, let's work well, to make well, the air on, cleaner. I, I heard that global warming is a scam <laughs> to make environmentalists oh, wealthy. No, no. We had an environmental scientist with us on Saturday at the festival. Sorry, and therefore she was not wealthy. <laughs> yes, that's right. really, We were trying to top her up. <laughs> slumming it with us and it's... Yes, they're certainly not... Uh, well, you can believe those conspiracy theories and listen to Space Brains. I think we are sci-fi. They might think that it's all sci-fi. Global warming is sci-fi. The, the, <laughs> well, the joke fiction. may well be on us when we find mm. out that after all of this, uh, you know, the the scientists have actually secretly built rockets to yeah. go and colonize Mars, which they haven't told us, but... Actually, it's quite habitable. They've hey, really just been taking photos of the, you know, deserts in, um, I know, Chile. Yeah, that's right. And a tiny little tidbit: you mentioned a world. Uh, you mentioned about a world of infinite energy. China scientists have announced they're working on a project. Like they've done the product. The what's the word? Model or whatever. I've lost the word. Where they would transmit solar energy from mm, space. I saw that down to Earth through, like, radiation, gamma rays, whatever, to receiving things, therefore never stopping the energy from the sun. Yes. So trying and to... the bonus is they're going to have Kentucky Fried Chicken around the <laughs> That's right, and you're just constantly frying chicken all day long. But wouldn't that be interesting? Because you, you mentioned oh, on Saturday yes. as well that infinite, you know, if some... if. If as a planet we had infinite energy, well, that means that we can travel a lot further, you know, without worrying about the payload of fossil fuels, you know. Yes. And so it does make it very different. So I thought that's an interesting future, isn't well, it? Well, that is a, a science that. fiction thing that um, idea that's been put forward is this uh, mm. having permanently based space arrays because mm. they don't have atmosphere in the way between them and the sun. Yeah. And you can collect, you can just point them at the sun all yeah. the time. Yeah, that's at right. At the ideal optimal angle. You don't have clouds or no. dust or anything like that getting in the way. Mm. The only trick then is you've got to somehow turn that energy 
into something we can get back on Earth. Yeah. Either with a great big cable, which is highly impractical, yep. <laughs> or we'll beam it down in some form. But I, I always imagined the cable would get tangled around the planet. Wouldn't that? Isn't that how it works? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, well, you get two like cables the, like close the to each other, cord, they just you know? instantly <laughs> yeah. But uh, that aside, see, I, I would have gone maybe hope, yeah. just just based on the fact that humanity got themselves into this bad situation, mm. and it was through the you know extra work of humans and their compassion our empathy yeah which led to the solution but experiment works pretty well and yeah. as i said his previous movies old blomkamp he have have also been sort of examinations of different types yeah. of empathy and this is yet another one and i think i disagree with you saying hope like mm. from my point of view because it's not a very hopeful world and also it takes it takes a pretty extreme individual in a weird situation to kind of sacrifice himself to kind of override the system which then you know gets us that hopeful ending when it feels like the rest of the movie is not very hopeful yeah, you know okay. like but but if you're out there listening which we know that there is at least one person listening <laughs> no we've got a few few hundred listeners now but if you're out there listening get in touch we've had a couple of listeners reaching out that's why i joke about the one We've had a really good response rate at the festival. We had a few listeners rock up as well and give up and give me some feedback. And they also gave Surrey some feedback. And so if you're out there and you're thinking, hey, I really think Surrey is wrong about hope, then let us know. And you wouldn't be alone. No. <laughs> no, give us your feedback. What do you think? Hope, experiment or warning? So was this your first time watching this? Uh, it wasn't. But like Chappie, I, I'd watched this back, I guess, almost 10 years ago now yeah, when yeah, it sort of first came out yeah. and I'd forgotten, I'd, I'd remember the major points, mm. but I'd, I'd forgotten exactly how it ended yep. and I'd sort of forgotten some of the cool features. Yes. Uh, I, so I'm, what was your impression this, sure time, this like, time? What was your vibe? The vibe, I, I got a whole lot more out of Charlto's Kruger. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do like Kruger. I do like him. He was a rough little boy. He was, <laughs> he was. I was going to save your daughter. <laughs> I was going to heal her. <laughs> and now I'm going to. Oh, Charlto, get in touch, mate. I know. I'd I'd love to. To, oh, we'd love to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I think with that accent, you're probably turning him off, actually. <laughs> well, but he yeah. can come and correct me. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the Kruger character, now really stood up a lot more when I watched it this time. Yeah. Obviously, I think the first time I was paying more attention to the heroic. Yeah, that's right. But the Kruger character as a samurai. Mm. Uh, and we'll, we'll touch on some of that symbology yeah. um, later on, which is it's not something you'd, ex you, you'd expect, but Blomkamp has sort of brought a little bit of that Asian influence in in Chappie as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where there was sort Interesting. of... Yeah, like the throw ninja throwing stars yeah, that Chappie yeah. had. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. the nunchucks. And then we've got like... Go to sleep. Uh, <laughs> You've got to sleep now. <laughs> go to sleep, go to sleep. You're tired. <laughs> but then, then, of course, we've got Kruger here with a you know a samurai sword. And yeah. he's also got his little hyper, super cool throwing stars and mm. a few other bits and pieces. It was a lot of fun Kruger in a, in a really bad way. Sometimes so, the villains are the most fun things, aren't they? So I was, I was watching this with my wife and... Mm. Yeah, we, we had it. We, we quite enjoyed it. We yeah. thought it was a, a very interesting um, world. In fact, it's such an in interesting world that, that it almost deserves to have more stories in yeah, there. Yeah, it's true. Like, yeah, you can make this into a TV sh like Netflix a, show. It doesn't you? have to be about getting to or from Elysium, but mm. you could imagine having, yeah, like a, a 
a series where you've got a couple of characters on Elysium, a couple of characters on Earth, and maybe one that sort of travels yeah. between the two. Yep. Maybe he's a plucky software engineer who works <laughs> on Elysium but has to stay back at home and do a podcast. Do a podcast about. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So what about yourself? Is this first time? How'd you watch this? What's going on? Uh, same as you. I think I kind of watched this, uh, probably pretty excited to watch this, I think, at the time uh, roughly it came out. I didn't see it in the movies or anything, I remember, but um, definitely a home viewing experience. But I was excited because District 9 was fresh in the mind and that had such a profound um, ex- experience because, remember, this is before Jappy. And as we said last episode, his wife and himself, Neil, wrote Chappie whilst they were making this. This was a much bigger blockbuster. You know, you've got Matt Damon, you've got Jodie Foster. You know, it's a it's a much bigger budget than District 9, definitely. And then obviously even sub- subsequently Chappie after this. So this is his then Hollywood kind of basically saying, here, have a huge chunk of money, show us what you got, I think. And so I remember being really excited to watch this. Probably at the time didn't quite live up to the power of District 9. But then mm. this time watching it through, I think, again, like you just saying, a little bit of a time uh, gap between and coming in, like we talk about, joy watching, um, very much going. I remember this being good. Like I liked a lot of the concepts at the time. I liked the sort of the arc. I, I kind of really felt like it, when I watched it, I felt like it was a good film. And then this time it was like, oh, now I get to kind of analyze it a little bit more, you know, with our eyeballs yeah. and space brains. And definitely noticing because we just did look at Chappie and it wasn't that long ago about District 9, how his style is as a filmmaker. Like I could see so many similar traits. So I want to kind of touch on that as we go throughout the plot later. Um, it was a good viewing experience, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Talking about them writing Chappie whilst doing this film, mm. you can see it from the robots. Yes. I mean, they're, they're almost exactly <laughs> they're Chappies. Like Chappie, aren't they? And yeah. you can imagine them sitting there doing this film and then just going, we you know, do that going and... oh, hey, you mm. know, um, what, what, what's the name? Uh, his wife's name? Uh, Terry. Terry. Yeah. I was going, yeah. Terry Tatchell, right? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, hey, Tezza. Yeah, yeah was it? <laughs> they're not Australians. Yeah, was it Blommy? <laughs> and he, he would have said, "What uh, is it, love?" <laughs> imagine one of these robots going a little bit caca and getting oh, smarts. Oh, I love, I love it. I oh, love, yeah, love. That's nice. Sweet day. Yeah. Okay, sit down, start writing while we wait for Matt Damon to get some more makeup on. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> right in between, <laughs> I'm Matt Damon. <laughs> is Matt ready? No, he's not ready. Okay, let's say, let's go, let's go, let's do it again. Let's let's. He's not right looking sweaty and sick enough yet. <laughs> and did you? What makes this film a science fiction film? Sorry, the science fiction film here. It's taken a sociological construct. Yep. Which we, you know, we already have a divide between rich and poor, and, yep. and I think the Neil class. coming from South Africa, there, yeah. there's quite a history of stark division. Yeah. I mean, obviously with the official apartheid type of thing. Yeah. But even after that, it's the the remains are that you've got really some rich people and some really poor mm. people. And there hasn't been a full mixing yet. No, no, no. But in the world at large, in every nation, really, there's there's these very there's strong always, yeah. scaling between mm-hmm. the, the wealthy. Uh, I, was trying, I was trying to explain to my kids how wealthy like a billionaire was. Yeah. Like yeah. Elon or, um, you know, Bezos or whatever yeah. his name is, how how much money being a billionaire was. Because mm. I said, you know, I was telling them that if they, they do certain things, they could easily, by the time they're my age, be a millionaire. Yep. Like that's possible. Yep. That's entirely possible. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, oh, yeah, we, we, could, we could be billionaires. I said, well, I mean, you might. That takes a bit of luck and a bit of possibly under, uh, you know, underhanded work, depending on how well your luck goes compared to how hard you're going to have to try and um, hustle. Mm. But, yeah, I had to explain the billionaire was that the house that I'm building at the moment, uh, a billionaire could you know, buy like 200, no, 20,000 20, of them or 2,000 of them or something like that. Yeah. I can't remember the exact scaling is. Yeah. But could buy, you know, like, could build an entire suburb yeah. of my house. Yeah. And the problem is by the time the house is finished building, he would have actually earned enough interest that he would still have money left over to build more. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they're like, oh my God. Because yeah. my kids understand that the house we're building is, is you know, the, the primary drain of all of our cash yeah. and money. And <laughs> actually, the, the COVID situation has been helpful because we haven't been able to go out and spend our money anywhere. So it's yeah. been kind of easy to save just being stuck at home yeah. for two years. But yeah, these uh, billionaires are really massively wealthy. We are going to say, well, let's ex- make this extreme. Let's really make this obvious. Yeah. And we're going to do it by saying, well, they're going to be not just uh, a little bit, you know, culturally remote. Mm. They're going to be physically yeah. in space. Yep, yep. On a space station. Mm. And they're going to have robots. And they get their level of technology as well is going to be so outclassing anyone on Earth mm. that the gap is almost, you know, uncrossable. Yeah. And it becomes a physical manifestation of that uncrossable gap. You know, the, yeah, yeah. the chance of me going from uh, comfortable middle class into Elon Musk's circle of friends is basically the same as me jumping on a spaceship and flying to Elysium. Yeah, yeah it's and, but, and there's even metaphorical rockets to shoot me down on the way. Yeah, but and and I think Blonkoff in his kind of race relation class division symbology which is in Chappie and is in District 9 especially in District 9 with you know the symbol of aliens in South Africa but in this example you can see uh, you know we know the, you know the United States do this but I'm going to speak from an Australian point of view you know like you have refugees come in here on boats yeah and it's a very you know it's it's the same thing they it's you know the guy spider and he's like a criminal underworld guy that is the master plan to get them into old ships and sells tickets you know you buy a ticket mm. and these poor people are trying to get to elysium for for primarily it looks like to use the health beds but i suppose to get there and breathe fresher air and their children and and it, and and there is a very clear analogy because for example in australia we have boat people coming here on boats that are sinking you know tiny mm. little canoes full of people and some of those people are coming from Syria and they've and, made and that they've, journey. They spent their life they've spent savings. Their life savings. They've fled their country. You're you're officially a refugee when you flee your country, and a lot of them are sold tickets on that same concept, don't they? Like get to Australia, get to Australia. Yeah, once you get there, it's all, like, all correct. Once you get there, it will be fine. And of course, they're coming on these boats that are literally sinking, and sometimes. You know, our Navy gives them a bit of a nudge, you know, it doesn't necessarily do the right thing, which we see in this movie to that next extreme mm. that they're blowing out. You know, one ship is blown out of the sky. The other one that lands, they collect them. And, and, and I thought that was really well done because 
it's similar here, you know, like it's, you don't come to Australia by boat illegally like that. And you're, you kind of get here and, oh, okay, we'll look after you a little bit. No, the military greet you. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it's the same in this one, the robots. And, you know, you saw the Jodie Foster characters, they dispose of them, you know, and they're yeah. like handcuffed. And even if they're kids, they're handcuffed and they're kind of like put in a really crude ship back to earth, aren't they, you know? And, you know, I know in the United States, they've had a policy like with the Mexicans and stuff, you know, put them back, arrest them, ship them back. And, you know, it's the same, it, I think he's, touching on that in this symbolic sci-fi yeah, I think story. So. And yeah. And the, the the science fiction elements in here make it make the story have the stakes required and and make things clear cut enough mm. that it's obvious. Yeah, it's obvious that well we're going to another planet. The soldiers aren't soldiers there. You know, and I, I thought about that a lot in this viewing. I'm like, yeah, the chappy is really rough. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, that's, you know, the, the soldiers are really rough. You know, if you come to Australia, those, those, the Navy are not nice to you. You know, like you're going to be mistreated a fair bit along that road for hassling them on the day, you know. Um, and you don't get here and you're, you're chucked in a prison out in Kalgoorlie, you know, like really harsh conditions. Oh, you know, right. so yeah, that's if you get to Australia at all. Yeah, that's... If You'll end up you, on yeah. Christmas Island or yeah. some Nauru yeah. or I don't know what it is. Yeah. The funny thing is, so many people say, let's not do that, but no one's actually stopped it. Yeah. Silence there. Mm, that's right. But I did feel like... And then we end up kind of being on Spider's side, but at the start it felt very much like he was taking advantage of that concept in a way, you know, which is a lot of the time those people are. But again, in this world of Elysium, they're just trying to do the best they can. Everyone, everyone's trying to live what they can. Yeah. So let's talk about the film festival that mm. was. Yes, it was awesome. Is- so last Saturday... The June eighteenth, we had the inaugural space brains inaugural, the inaugural space brain science fiction film festival at the beautiful Manpack Theatre. Big thanks to Manpack for hosting it, and we uh, had Angela Tomlinson as our MC. Great work. She did awesome work. Absolute professional, local Mandra presenter, um, so highly recommend her. We also had HM Warren deliver the science workshop, which was super interesting. We had, we had photography coverage by uh, Veronica Sayova. Yeah, again, she's, another Mandra. She's, she's a, a local Mandra uh, photographer. She, she supported us very generously on our launch party with free photography. Yes. Um, and she did a fantastic job, as you'll witness, by visiting our site and checking out yeah, uh, Instagram and this is, I've just downloaded two gigabytes worth of full-size <laughs> images. Yeah. Uh, there's about 270 or so, whatever. Um, awesome photos, I'm yeah. sure we'll be chucking them up somewhere. Yeah. You'll be seeing them posted throughout the year. Yeah, so I, d- I put up uh, the highlights reel the other day on, on Monday already. So if you follow us on Facebook and, yeah, well, Facebook actually at the moment, Instagram hasn't had any, but, yeah, we'll share them across the network, a couple on LinkedIn as well, so... Uh, but yeah, we had HM Warren. She delivered a science workshop, which was very engaging. We had some great questions from the crowd about was it terraforming Mars? Terraforming Mars was and crickets. Was it awesome? Yeah, crickets. I wouldn't have thought about that. It was that great question about do you take the crickets live? Because that would be annoying on the spaceship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, hey, yeah, that's awesome. How do you? Because it's a nine month trip, isn't it? That's a sci fi film on its own, I reckon. The crickets get out. You yeah, know, they get like, out in the plane, and then they become mutant crickets. Get into the instrumentation. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Uh, and we had Samantha Murray delivering a writing workshop. Yeah, uh, she was excellent. Really talking about her writing process. I got tips. feedback from some of the writers in the crowd that they've been inspired. Mm. They're taking notes. People yep. are taking notes about this. Yep. 
asking questions about publishing and how to check who's reading your material. And, and I liked that she talked about rejection and having yes. a thick skin and, you know, how she showed us that data graph that she kind of what's working and what's not working. And um, I really liked that because I think that's such an important element. And also then filmmaker Ben Young also talked about that. So he also mentioned how, you know, when he went to uni, he wasn't really known by his lecturers, but then, uh, and the, those that maybe excelled at uni went out of uni and tried to make a film and didn't work or they didn't get funding. They kind of gave up. Whereas he's kept going at it and had the rejections. And yeah. He gave continued. some really good insights there about working in the film industry and getting sudden success yeah. and then finding what it is yeah, you, you really want to pursue, yeah. you know, like yeah. uh, he, he was telling us about the, the latest film he came uh, finished. He's doing some posts on it at the mm. moment. He finished yep. the primary filming and he was saying that that was really good. Uh, he, he gelled with that well as an independent yep. uh, production where he was you know, very able to be very creative in mm. the way he was doing things and the actors he was working with. So Billy Bob, a good old buddy, Billy yeah. and Robin Wright, they were very cooperative and shared his vision. He's, he's it, was, it was a really good experience yeah. and, you know, it sounds like, he's going to be pursuing more of that sort of yeah, work. Yeah. And yeah, as, as someone trying to be creative, that's what you want to do. You want to find yeah. out a way to do the stuff that you like doing. Yes. And yeah. there was, and from that, I've got a few really good uh, takeaways there from, yeah, me too. From that discussion. And it was good. Yeah. And again, the audience was very engaged and, and then these guys called space brains also did a podcasting workshop, um, <laughs> which I really feel we need to do that again, but with more time, uh, because as you might know, as listeners, we like to talk. So yeah, yeah, 30, 30 minutes was, we didn't even get to the questions. And again, the feedback from people has been really lovely about all of those workshops, picking up things, picking up pieces. Uh, we had a great lunch. We had a awesome mingling. The crowd really surged during the red carpet kind of, you know, getting ready for the film festival component. And then we got to pull that 70 plus strong crowd into the lovely little theater at Manpack, uh, play our 16 of the best and greatest short, short science films. fiction films that we picked. People were gasping and laughing and there yeah. was noises. It was fantastic. There was moans and groans. I spoke and, with some yeah. of the filmmakers afterwards and they yeah. were telling us uh, it was the most incredible experience to see their mm, film yeah. up on a screen in front of a live audience in mm. a theatre. Because normally it's you put up on YouTube, yep. you see the views go up, but you don't really, you maybe get a few mm. comments, yeah. maybe you don't. It's it's a bit artificial in the digital environment, whereas that's a visceral experience, isn't oh, it? Because well, look, when you're people, there. When people <laughs> gasped in shock yeah. at that, the growth, yeah. that, was a, that was a genuine response yeah, that people yeah, had. No. It was like a real, no. like in the moment, whoo. Yeah. And as someone that's had a film on a big screen as well, you kind of sit there with your heart pound in a way because it's quite vulnerable that that's oh that's my film do, do, do people like it do they hate it and when you hear those laughs or groans or whatever you, you know your desired outcome was i mean if everyone's laughing and the idea was it's really horror sci-fi maybe you're like why are they laughing <laughs> uh but you know it, it sort of there's a validation and that was part of our goal wasn't it was that we wanted to give people the opportunity to put it on the big screen. Oh, yes, I um, think so. And so those filmmakers, we had a, a great young filmmaker come all the way from Melbourne for with his film subscription-based. And uh, in fact, then after all, and so he came all the way for that ceremony. He was nominated and he did win the best writing because that, that film had some fantastic dialogue. Oh, it was a very funny film. It was a very funny sci-fi, very dark humour. 
Um, but yeah, Oliver came all the way over from Melbourne uh, with his wife and bub to support the festival. And um, yeah, and then, you know, he didn't know, but he actually was going to be taking home one of those awesome little Space Brains trophies. Um, so we went pretty quickly through the trophies afterwards. We, um, you know, were able to hand out the awards and congratulate certain filmmakers and actors um, and writers and directors and science elements. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot of really good joy in the room, wasn't there? Uh, it was. It was. It was fantastic. We finished off with a, a great locally produced music video by the Terror yeah. Adapters. Yep. I think I spotted one of the guys there. Yeah, right. It, awesome. It turned up. Yep. Uh, you could spot him because he had his outlandish rock and roll gear on. <laughs> good awesome. stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was such a blast. I had a real great day. Very grateful to um, everyone that partook, everyone that came. Very grateful to the city of Mandra for supporting us. Very, um, very happy that Manpack put us up for the day. Um, felt like I was in very good hands with Angela, you know, hosting yeah, the yeah, day. That made um, things quite easy for yeah, us. Yeah, and and then everything pretty much went according to plan. You know, I mean, we fought the time clock a little bit but i think it actually was a very smooth running day yeah um and, well, we, and that was for we, a lot of factors yeah. we learned we learned a lot from our launch we event did. so we this did. time we had a, a a run sheet that was down to sort of 10 20 minute increments yeah, 10 minute little extra uh, blocks up our sleeve and we're you know, listing all the slides are going to be shown yeah. and every every possible you know this has to be picked up and packed away that's going to be set up mm. some layout sheets so yeah it, as a result yeah it was Fantastic work by everyone. Great yeah. team, teamwork as well. Um, and the People's Choice Award went to the awesome French film Transfer. Transfer. So we will put all this information out online and on our website. We'll, 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 you know, we'll put up the winners and all that kind of stuff. So stay tuned for that. If you were at the event, let us know. Hit us up on the socials. Uh, the, you might be able to spot yourself in a photo in the coming days. Oh, um, yeah, there's a lot of photos on the red carpet. A lot of carpet. photos on the red carpet. Some awesome people. There's some people because it was such a blur to me. I was like, oh, you're there because <laughs> yeah. I just was running all over the shop. But um, it was really great to see so many supporters. So, yeah, when you see a photo, tag yourself, share it to your network um, and let us know if you did come to the festival what you thought about it. Oh, yes. We're, we're going to be coming up to our planning session. Uh, in fact... Probably while you're listening to this, we'll be in our deep in our planning meeting, <laughs> figuring out what's going to unfold in the coming what's year for Space Brains. But whatever it is, it's going to be pretty cool. And a big thank you for everyone that supported us and came on the day. Okay, let's get back to Elysium, uh, going through some of the key parts, the plot, the filmmaking, the, the camera, the sound, and then getting into some of the science. So Elysium, as we mentioned, was directed by the great sci-fi uh, filmmaker Neil Blomkoff, who also wrote this script. We mentioned Matt Damon. The great Jodie Foster. I always love seeing Jodie Foster. And there's another awesome sci-fi film that she's in that we have to get to, Contact. Mm. <laughs> um, and, of course, Charlotte Copley. Charlotte Copley. Copley? Copley? He's a surprising little actor, that he one. He is. He's great. Um, I don't know what he's that He's in was. a surprising <laughs> number of films that you you wouldn't think of. And I love, I love that Neil has kept using him because the story goes that back in the 90s, uh, Shalto was working at a production company and he was an actor as well, like he was doing both, and he lent 
the space to Neil to work on some of his like visual effects, like the computer at nighttime or whatever. And he, he enabled him to do that. And then in return, they, they kind of made a short film together. And obviously they've had this blossoming partnership kind Mm. of as actor director. And here he probably really got to pay him back by paying him some big bucks from Hollywood and get you into a film with Matt Damon, you know what I mean? Like really trying to bump him up as an actor. So, and it, I mean, he just delivers it. He's an awesome actor. I don't. He should be in more and more stuff. Well, when you consider that he was Vickers Vandermeer in District Nine, he's mm. sort of a a bumbling bureaucrat. Yeah, a bit awkward. Yeah, uh, and then in. This, Elysium. This Elysium here, he's, he's this hard bitten, badass, yeah. you know, soldier boy. <laughs> yeah. And then in Chappie, he's Chappie. <laughs> so that's a pretty good diversification of uh, characters. Elysium was shot in the United States. Uh, yeah, totally filmed and created in the US. Um, had a really good budget, 115 million. So that gives you a fair bit to play with. And you see it, don't you? You see it in this, in the camera shots and the, the special effects are really through the roof. Um, and it had a pretty good, healthy return at the box office of $286 million, So I think those producers would be reasonably happy with that. Um, and then that doesn't even account, you know, what sort of happens now with maybe Netflix and stuff. So, uh, yeah, pretty good return on investment. I think critically it's got a reasonably good response, but it is a cracker of a sci-fi that you I, should check out. I think it's a, little bit, it's a bit underrated, really. It is. A, it I is, read it a, is. Uh, a critic's review of it. Mm, and it's the reason why I don't read those things, and it's the reason why I go into Joy Watch this. Yeah, because stay with space brands. The, the critic was kind of, I, I feel they were missing the whole point. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be a common thread when I read a lot of critical reviews of films. I sort of go, you, you kind of don't get it, do you? No. You, and you and you know what, don't. if if you know, forget the movie reviews. If you're someone that likes sci-fi, I will say Blonkov really does embed throughout his whole film a, a bucket load of sci-fi ideas, doesn't he? You know, like, like you know, in this film, the weapons, you know, again, he's got weird weapons going yeah, on, right? Like futuristic weapons. If you take the space shuttles, he, he doesn't just do a standard space shuttle. He does the traditional type and then he like, you know, like here the boss has a sports car spaceship, you know? Like he a takes things to, no you know, and nice. even and one of the, my favourite bits in this movie is the fact that when he has to go to the parole officer, the police officer, and it's like this dummy robot thing. You it know, like, looks like, like a Johnny Cab Johnny, yeah, Total Recall. It totally looks like that, but then it's also got graffiti on it because he, and he likes to kind of embed that into his stories as well as graffiti, isn't it? It's like in Chappie a lot um, and it's in this film a fair bit but I uh, there's these little elements of sci-fi and then the health beds and you know um, the way that the robotics are implanted into a Matt Damon the very and, fact know, like, that the Elysium space station doesn't have a an enclosed ring no that's right but yeah. you know I mean scientifically you can do that because yeah. you just have to have high enough walls mm. and the air will just stick there with the artificial gravity just there like people go. will yeah so he really pushes you know, the sci-fi and there's like little touches of sci-fi. That's Mm. what I love. Same in Chappie, same in District 9. There's little touch-ups on the story of sci-fi. So if you love it, that's what you're going to get out of it. There's lots of little details. So let's break this film down, shall we? We shall. So we do like to break the narrative structure to the three-act structure. What does that include, Sorry. 
Well, it includes three acts. Yes, Mark. done. Okay, so, first act. <laughs> Just give us a quick rundown of okay, first okay. act. Okay, first act is the introduction. We have an opening image which establishes some world. It establishes uh, the problems that are being faced in general. Mm. We meet our characters yeah. and the problems they're facing Max, in particular. Max, Max, and Chappie. Sorry, Max and Elysium. Sorry. Yeah, and Elysium. I'm stop saying uh, And then the one of the first important point really in here is the. Uh, inciting incident, the catalyst, the point where you realize there's a direction to this story. There's a reason for this story. Otherwise, it's just a laundry list of things that happened. Yeah. And then you you move... Oh, I nearly went on to talk about Elysium then. But you (laughs) you move on from that is you've got like this sort of uh, catalyst. Something has happened which has changed something. Yeah. And then you've got like a bit of a... Is this really going to change stuff? Is it not? Should I ignore it? Should I continue it? Should I curl up and die? a debate... Which yeah, they always do, yeah. and they go, oh, you know what? I'm, I've got, I'm gonna go for it. I either have to go for it, or I'm choosing to go for it. Mm. Either way, yeah. They move in, into the story. They get to Act Two, which is so yeah, Act Two is the fun and games. It's the trailer. It's the journey to the princess at the top of the you know forest. It's to the you're gonna take a plane to the sun to save the planet. You know you're gonna go and drill a core hole in an asteroid that's going to take out earth it's the fun of the story so even if it's the most diabolic um, story it is literally the idea of what the character has decided to do and now they're going on that journey and so now they're on that journey we have a lot of fun elements hopefully for the um, audience Uh, this is the bit you should sort of be you know sinking in your chair stuffing your face with popcorn and going yeah this is what I paid for. Yeah, this is what I wanted. <laughs> I wanted to see, uh, you know, a big killer South African blowing up the crap out of Matt Damon in some sort of robotic suit. Yeah, thing. I mean, you know, you, like, that's what you want to see. If you went to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and if in the uh, Fun and Games section you didn't see a chainsaw, chainsaw? massacre, <laughs> then yeah, yeah, you'd start going, "Where's the chainsaw? Where's, where's the, the cha- where's yeah. the person who's going to massacre?" In a film like this, where's the sci-fi? You know, if you haven't seen some sort of sci-fi by now, you might be leaving. You know, so that's what this is all about. Which leads to a midpoint in the character's journey. That's a bit where, yeah, you've had a bit of fun, you've tried out the experiment, and then now it's serious. Quite often, midpoints are also a bit down. Um, for the key characters so they might have tried out something a new power suit a new shuttle to the moon uh, you know their horse that they were riding dies so there's a point here where the story kind of starts to take a much serious turn and we get things which quite often the experts label are things like the bad guys closing in you know things being lost a dark night of the soul um you know whatever their plan was in that first act to kind of try to solve the inside incident goes wrong so maybe they in the fun and games got their the best job at nasa that they spent their whole childhood wanting and dreaming about and it was the job that their father couldn't get and they they did it and then they get to this bit and they lose the job no. You know, and and but that's all they ever wanted. And NASA's saying you can't come back here. You know, and so their dream is squashed. And that's kind of that dark night of the soul, that things have not gone well. Their plan has not turned out. And quite often you sit there on the side of the road in the rain saying, My life sucks. And the question here in a movie is going, Okay, well, how do you pick yourself up and dust yourself off and try again? But it's now got to be a little bit different. 
You've you got to take the journey that you've been on. You have and to have learned something. Learn something, you know, and this is where some of the best writing teachers say it can't be too in your face, it can't be too on the nose, it can't be too cliche. And what they mean is that, I mean, they can't just obviously learn something. Uh, it's supposed to be kind of bedded into the story. In fact, you might even sort of say, for example, you look at The Matrix, he literally does just learn a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And in The Dark Knight of the Soul of the Matrix, it's not the Kung Fu he learned. No. It's not the ability to just get guns, lots of guns. Mm. None of that, like all of that stuff that he apparently learned, but it's not what he's, you know, his journey taught him. Mm. Is yeah. It? No, and I mean, even in The Matrix, and if you haven't watched it, sorry, pause, go watch it, listen to a previous episode. But even in that, he's then saying, like, like compared to Neo at the start to Neo at that point in the film, he's now got a, a gang. He's got a group of people around him, whereas at the start, he's all alone. He's got he's, he's all alone, alone and without passion. Yeah, without no. passion, whereas now at least he's going to go off and save Morpheus thinking he's not the one, but thinking, well, you know what, I'm part of this group. I can do that. So, yeah. It's something that is now, and then now that's his new plan. And that takes you into Act 3, sorry. Act 3, of course, is called the finale. Finale. And for good reason, because it finishes everything off. This is where we've got to wrap things up satisfactorily. It doesn't mm. mean that everything has to be solved. It doesn't mean it has to be happy. No. But it, it has to make sense and be emotionally satisfying. Mm. And th- yeah, that means... Uh, in a uh, in a song, if you look at a, the the way music progresses through a song, you start off on a C chord, and then you play through a, a progression, and you'll get a choruses and all that. And the very final chord you'll hear usually is the same C. If it started with a C, it'll end on a C. It might yep. be a little bit different, but you'll hear that C, and that's the end. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, and you try it when you just get to a, a song, and just before the last you know, halfway through the last sort of measure, hit stop, it's it's dissatisfying. It's, it is. it's not cool. <laughs> so you need the same sort of thing going on yeah. here. And it doesn't matter if it's a happy song or a sad song, you still need it. You need some sort of ending. And in this one here, the start of Act 3 is where they've taken this inspiration, they've got their plan, they've got to take action, yeah. and they head off because now they're champions of the world. And then partway through Act 3, it turns out actually that they weren't good enough. No. Something else has changed. Yeah. Plans fail, you know, a new bad guy reveals itself. Um, the, you know, Mount Doom is just a little bit harder than they thought. Yeah, the monster was tougher than whatever imagined, yeah. This is, where, this is where you have to get the real theme or message of the story yeah. is the learning of the journey and the hero takes that and can now find a way to turn it around mm. and give us a satisfactory ending. As it's sometimes does. the turnaround is... Is that they die? Yeah, and yeah. some because they realise that that's that's the important that's thing. To the do. Only way Sometimes they they literally discover the monster's weakness at the very last minute, and yeah. then you go, "Oh, that's right." Mum always said that monsters can't survive if you poke them in the heart with a lightsaber. Yeah, yeah. I can't either, but you know, monsters can't. Yeah, yeah. So and it's a one in a million shot. <laughs> but then, then like that, this is the satisfying ending you've got to have. You've got to end on that same note you started with, yeah. with the closing image, which shows a comparison with how it started, how it ends. It's often mirrors it in some way or contains yeah. similar themes and elements changed by the story. Yeah, shown in a bit of a different way. Because that's what gives you that that ah yeah, uh, feeling. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and we all love those those um, sort of biopics where they have like the little 
the text epitaphs, which is like, little Johnny went on to have a career as a law, criminal lawyer yeah. before getting his first spot on the space shuttle to the yeah. moon. Finally, he had eighteen his children dream. with his with the mm. girl in the movie, whatever, right? Yeah, something like uh, that. Something like that. But anyway, there you go. But so uh, with Elysium, how does it that start? Whew, how does Elysium start? It has an opening image. It has a little bit of text, which uh, yeah, maybe it wasn't entirely necessary considering the imagery was so strong because mm. we get shots of just like slum. Yep. And it's got, again, that hard light that he used in District 9, mm-hmm. which sort of always implies a, a harshness to reality, yeah. sharp shadows, um, a little bit cold feeling or maybe too hot feeling. Yeah. Uh, we've, we fly in over a world that's just devastated. Yeah. And then we get this... You know, um, we get told that, of course, all you know, it's the late twenty-first century. The world has gone to heck. It's gross. It's not an apocalypse. It's just pollution, yeah. population, um, you know, um, social collapse, and all the rich people have left. And we get a nice shot of Elysium. Mm. We fly through that, and that's like, you know, par- paradise. Paradise, yeah, it's beautiful. And we come back to a little Max, don't we? Who's speaking with a nun. And she's she's kind of talking to him, and and he's with Frey, isn't he, with the little girl? Yeah, and- he meets Frey, who sort of teaches him to read. Yeah, and the nun sits him down and says, "Yo, one day you're going to." Because apparently, this is what now nuns talk like this. Yeah. Doesn't matter how old they are. <laughs> one day, or gen- gender. I mean, one day you're going to do something important. What yes. you're made to do. Yeah. And um, it's all sort of a bit of a flashy memory, isn't it? It's, it's, it's all a bit it's soft dreamy. focus. It's yeah. dreamy. Yeah, it's a very white and glowy. And, yeah, Max and Freya are kind of best friends and they, he draws that. He says, oh, one day I'll get you up to Elysium. Um, and they, they're sort of staring at it in the sky like you might stare at a, a star or the moon or something. And and to me in this bit here, the 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 theme is clearly pretty much stated in that opening bit, which is the nun saying, "If you look, you look at that, and it's beautiful, like he's looking at Elysium." Yeah. But then, this is the view, and she opens this little, what are they called, like locket. little locket thing, yeah. And there's a picture of Earth from space, and she yeah. goes, "Oh, this is the view of Earth for them," you know. And so there's a strong juxtaposition there because. It's exactly right. Like where Max is, it looks all dirty and dusty and but slums and broken down. From a distance. But from a distance, Earth looks really nice. something or other. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've got open image theme stated. Um, and then we, then we kind of basically come in on Max, who's Matt Damon now as an adult. Um, he's living in a pretty slummy place, so his house is a shithole. His head's um, shaved. His head's shaved. He's got a few sort of shitty-looking tattoos. It looks like um, someone scribbled on him with text. Yeah, basically. he does have a um, oh, what's it called the jo- the bracelet thing, community bracelet around his uh, ankle ankle bracelet. Yeah, um, yeah. which you know suggests that he's been in jail. He when he exits his little shitty slum house, there's. You know, like a gang that jokes with him about, oh, you're going off to your job, you know, like make the money, go to the factory. And he's got a really crappy set of overalls on with, yeah. I think it, the brand is... Um, Armadine. Armadal or something, isn't it? Or Armadina. Uh, it's, it's always Dine. Yeah. Like Armadine. Cyberdyne. Yeah. <laughs> Armadine. It's, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that was a little nod to Terminator. Yeah. Because at the factory he does make robots. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, and... He, you, you see him kind of queuing up for these uh, like shitty buses, and they, again we got this real Neil Blanc of similar style, like 
hordes of people. There's a hustle. There's a bustle. There's a dustiness. There's a lot of noise. Um, there's kids asking for money. There's a, there's kind of a real tension in the air. Mm. It, it doesn't feel at all very pleasant. And and now that I've watched those three three of his films pretty closely together, you can see that that's in all of his films. Yeah. Um, also, with the way he uses the camera, he builds a lot more intensity because it's like very point of view. It's very shaky. It's very in your face. He like he likes to kind of keep us close, and it's so. So I mean, you might do that. Like, it, there's a really famous Spielberg movie, um, Saving Private Ryan, where the opening sequence of the the battle is all point of view. Point of view as a camera makes you feel like you are walking around in the scene. You know, like it's shaky. It's oh, home that's, video. You just remind me of the other movie that Charlto's in is that called Dangerous Henry or something, right? Uh, which is shot. From a first-person point of view, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. kind of like a video game. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's okay. sort of meant to evoke the same sort of idea of these first-person video yeah. games, and that's Shalto doing that one. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, cool. So yeah, again, that draws us into that action, and so poor Max is in this queue, and we see the robots coming up, and they're police robots or something. Yeah, they're just hassling people. They're hassling people for ID, and they're they're quite aggressive and. He he, sort of, you know, we're seeing that he's trying to toe the line, you know, and they come up and um, they harass him and they want to see in his bag and they remind him that he's on parole and he kind of does a smart-ass comment. This is and, a and bit of a joke. With that, they kind of rip the bag off and they, they crunch his arm and, and you know, break it, don't they? They just yeah. break his arm for him. <laughs> um, and, of course, the whole setup there is to say to you, yeah, it's a, it's a brutal world. It's a very authoritative world. It's very strict. Um, he's obviously maybe done some wrong shit in the past, but how do you then get back on the straight and narrow? The world's kind of after him, isn't it? You wonder why they bother. I yeah, mean, really. No. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, he also then he goes to hospital where he sees Freya, which uh, they yeah, haven't... Freya's there, and it, yeah, it turns out they haven't spoken they in haven't, quite a while. Yeah, and she became a nurse. And um, the nurse, as Sari mentioned earlier, it's... Again, it's really hustly and bustly and, you know, there's people everywhere and there's crying and screaming and, yeah, you know, I mean, he's got a broken arm but other people have much worse injuries. And, and again, it's that style that I was just talking about. It's a very busy place, which... And th- it's interesting with this setup where he's got this broken arm and there's this trouble and they, they yeah, plaster it and mm. he's he's going to have trouble for a while and yeah. he's he's got to go to work and it's not until later on that you see these, again, these healing beds yeah. where it's just like... They just it. It could just heal it. Heal anything, <laughs> yeah. Basically, and the doctor says in, that in about he? in yeah. about thirty seconds. Yeah, <laughs> I love I love that that doctor says it about her daughter later. He's like, well, it's not like we can heal. It's not like this is a healing place. Yeah, <laughs> it's like can, it's a hospital. We, we can't just heal it. It's not <laughs> yeah. Elysium. Yeah, that's right. And anyway, then when he gets to the factory, the boss gives him a bit of shit for being late. And oh no, you can't work. Oh, he's going to meet his parole and, officer first. Oh, sorry. Yeah, there's that, that great. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, he goes to the parole officer, which it just seems like such. A, it's a complete waste of time, waste bureaucratic of time. process yeah. because. The parole officer just it kept asking him things and th- but didn't care about any of no, his answers no. until the end is oh would would you like something for that and up yeah. pops a little drug dispensary yeah which just is also weird isn't your it? choice of drug and you're like he says no I don't want something for that yeah which yeah it makes you sort of think oh really that's just what they do is oh, he just takes something just, just have some make drugs. you be happy yeah. But you're right, and and I loved that. I loved that scene bit for me. It's a really good take on a bleak sci-fi future 
where robotics are taking over that human role. It's the role it's that and- literal interpretation of a faceless bureaucracy because yeah. <laughs> it, it literally is a just a, faceless, a machine yeah. going through uh, an ordered list yeah. and responding quite you know like he does a, a little bit again he does a little bit of a joke and the machine doesn't like the joke you the, know. the joke he says you know it's it's are you abusing or yeah. patronizing me it's illegal to abuse yeah. a, a, <laughs> like no jesus and it just again sets up that Max has no power. He, he has no power over this system, you know. But I love this is that the whole save the cat thing. Is so far all the way along here, we've seen he's jovial. He's trying to get along. He's mm. trying to do the right thing. Yeah. He makes little jokes, innocent sort of little jokes, but maybe it's inappropriate. So, so what can, cat does he save? You can, well, I think it's my like the kids that um, you know try to rob him, and he mm. sort of plays with them a little plays bit. Plays with them, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, he's, he endears us with his little bit of humor. Yeah. Well, he's got humor, whereas the robots don't. We can right? see like, he's a bit of a. Uh, yeah, we can see he's been in prison. He's done yeah. some criminal stuff. Like someone even asked him on the way whether he's going to rejoin the gang. Yeah. And he's no, no, I'm going straight. I'm trying to be straight. Yeah. And we, we have a few jokes in City Go Hard. Look, clearly, he's just someone who's been a bit of a joker, and that's kind yeah. of led to bad things. So yeah, he's late to work for that for the arm thing and and here we see that yeah you mentioned making the they're actually making the robots that then police them so <laughs> so there's a bit of irony there here's isn't the question. There? when he met Frey mm. and reconnected with her that was where as an audience member I went ah they were supposed to go to Elysium together yeah. and now he's re-met her yeah I think this is the start of the catalyst. Yeah. Like yeah. Blomkamp doesn't have Okay, so I'm going to go back to this this film which I I recommend people watch actually is the uh, map of tiny perfect things. Have you seen that one yet? No. Okay, you should watch it because pretty much right on the 12 minute mark. Yeah. In the space of well, maybe it's a 2 second shot. Yeah. is the the inciting incident. Yeah. And it's it's just so well done that you're just sitting there watching this because it's a it's a groundhog day thing. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. you you're watching this and then just at that mo- at that point, Perfect. bam, this yeah. thing happens. And as the audience member, it's like, oh, whoa, bang, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And it, it was, it's just two seconds, it's done. You know exactly what yeah. the story, you don't know what the story is going to be, but you know what the story is going to explore. You know where mm. Act 2 is going. Yeah. And the Blomkamp, like with Chappie, we're sort of talking about where exactly was yeah. the inciting incident. It sort of started with... Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> I cast my mind back two weeks. Yeah. It's full of film festivals. Don't it worry is. about it. But this one here is likewise. He met Freya, and as the audience member, I said, "Go, that's right." He promised they're going to go to Elysium. Yeah, the movie's called Elysium. Mm. This is the start of it. Yeah, and and you know what? It's I found this one. I agree. Chappie was a bit grey as well. We we were a bit undecided. Is it when Chappie? gets the AI program or is it where before that when he invents the AI program mm. you know because what well, like which one comes or is it when Chappie gets blown out of the water or he like you know and dies it's it's hard to know exactly you know yeah. um, and I felt like this one if you go the traditional model it's probably then a little bit later on when he's in the factory and he has the accident and he's exposed because that like just puts him on a, a trajectory yeah. but you could Definitely back it all the way up to, and I found this when I watched it this time. I'm like, I knew with that, I didn't, I wasn't on the timer, but I knew that around 12 minutes we hadn't. It didn't feel like we'd had a catalyst. You know, it's one of those yeah. movies. I'm like, there's there's no actual catalyst here. He'd been abused by the police officer, and then he goes to the the uh, hospital mm. and he meets Freya Shaw. Is that the catalyst? Maybe, 
Maybe not. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. is it a big enough change that he's just met the girl well, from that's his what childhood? I, mean. I think like, that's, that was the start. Little... That's where you start going, ah. Oh, yeah. Here, he's promised he's going to go to Elysium. He's re-met her. Yeah. Something's going to draw yep. them together, something. And okay. it doesn't come until a bit later, I think, because he goes to the factory and gets hassled. Yeah, for being and, late. And, and we do see, we do cut away then to see um, the smugglers mm. smuggling stuff. Yeah. And you could sort of go, now you've seen he's met Freya mm. and you see the smugglers are smuggling people up there. Yeah. You're starting to go, okay. Yep. This, but how does this work together? Yeah, and I did. I personally did wonder because I was thinking that. Like, I did personally wonder whether that could have been edited a bit tighter. And mm. so the the like to me, him going in the machine is a major, you know, because he's going now. You're going to be dead in five days, you know. But yeah. just the 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 minute he goes in the machine, you know what's going to happen. So that could have been the twelve minute mark, whether it was needed. You know, the, we could have had the police brutality. We could have had the the meeting Freya, but it could have just been sped up a little. See, yeah, without, but then I don't. But you know, this without is what having the meeting Freya first, though. Yeah. If he if if he went into the the machine, got radiated. Yeah. Okay. So as the audience, we know that you can get healed on Elysium, but he doesn't have that uh, that that emotional connection. We yeah. don't we don't have that Freya is there. Where he's still not connected in the story, mm. but we know there's that connection. But maybe he could have then gone to hospital with the radiation or something. You know what I mean? But but it's Neil's movie, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. We'll leave it to the experts. But I got, the, the main thing is <laughs> Let that, us that know. from the point he met Freya through to, you know, that's, that's, where, life I, changed, that's where I started yeah. going, oh, yeah. And then, because you're going, he, he made a coffee date with her. Mm, yeah. And you sort of go, oh, oh, yeah, okay. But then he gets irradiated. And mm. now you go, okay, so... Uh, he's he promised Freya coffee. to go to Elysium. He has to go to Elysium now or he dies. Yeah. He's got this coffee date. Is he, you know, how is he going to get, you know, in any case, you're interested in this story yeah, now. Yeah, like now, up, now you're it? going, yeah. there, there's a there's a, a reason for things to happen now yes. and there's a reason for a plot a stage And too. And I guess maybe the argument there could be he had to see Freya because otherwise it was just his normal life and maybe if he got radiated, he just gives up. Whereas Freya yeah. kind of gives him a little bit of a nugget of, Oh no! I I made that promise to her, and I mm. want to go. So, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm happy with that as the catalyst for sure. So he does. I love the scene where he gets a bit fried in that. You know, the boss because this is what bosses do in these jobs, don't they? Just get in there and just give get, you know clear out the machine because the robot trolley got stuck. And he's like, oh, it's not safe. We'll get in there because otherwise we'll just get someone else to do it. You know, and he's so again. It's like these. That's that class well, theme that's like from that. Blongov, right? Like like you're stuck. You can't do anything about this, really, in that situation again. Like, if he if he if he loses his job, he's probably in trouble with. Parole. Well, that's soil and green, isn't it? Yeah, it and is, I, yeah. I've got to wonder: Did Neil, you know, get connections, to you that, know, yeah. uh, inspiration, and go? You know, there's that same thing of if I don't do know, solve this, if I don't do this, then I lose my job, and I become you know the seventy five percent unemployment. That's me. Mm. So we do find out in this bit that Spider runs. Excuse me. Spider runs flights to Elysium to try to smuggle that refugee idea. And we see them trying to do that. And one plane gets shot down. We also see the second one land. Kruger gets activated. Yeah. And and the robots are very militarized. Um, People run with their, you know, they try to use the health bays and, you know, quickly. I really like that Kruger shot because she activates Kruger. Yeah. And there's just some dude rocks up, walks along, yeah. and these these shuttles are off in space. Yeah, and he's got like a a four pack shoulder launched missile launcher like from the eighties. <laughs> yeah, which is is very commando. Yeah, and he puts it up on his shoulder, and you're like, 
dude there in space. That's right. He pulls a trigger and it just goes to show because, I mean, these shuttles did just, without a big launch pad, everything just go up into space. Yeah. Clearly that propulsion technology is available. Yeah. And these missiles, ground to space missiles, which yeah. shot down these things. It's just that bit of high tech. Yeah. Like that's, that's genuine high tech. Yep. Yeah, no, yeah. no doubt about that. Definitely. So I, I, I really like that sort of shot because it, it did confuse me at first. He's like, what, what's he going to do with, like, why is he carrying a rocket launcher? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But just a hand portable rocket launcher could actually launch in a space and shoot shuttles down. Yeah. Just goes to show you the sort of technology that there's Elysium. Big time. And that, yeah, that's what we were saying before about the tech of Blomkaff's kind of idea. Um, so Jodie Foster, she's kind of on this Elysium in the political sphere. She's the defense minister or something like that yeah and so she's the one that's ordered Kruger to to fire them down this results in then the president kind of uh, apprehending her and she doesn't like that at all um you know and she's like well you know what would you expect if you had children these animals landing here you know to take it's this the thing you're going to come and take our land and and this is one of those arguments yeah argue back and say well how about you make their lives better there yeah, yeah. then they won't come here that's right i mean you've got the technology and wealth to do yeah. that you could do now you better buy twitter yeah <laughs> that's exactly right right like and it's the same argument when refugees come to australia like well maybe we should donate more money back to those countries and help them out in or other ways not like, invade them yeah not invade them not take their resources not do dodgy deals with companies to mine them and you know not protect their sovereignty those sorts of things yeah. not give them dictatorship leaders that are imposed into their systems you know just some of those things a couple of, couple of those things just a couple you? of those little things you know yeah no, no, maybe no. don't take all their money wealth out of their country through their natural resources and use it in our own country no no just pre- Shoot them off to Christmas Island yeah, you know, there for a bit. Yeah, and just lock them up. Yeah, no, none of those things. Anyway. <laughs> but the same mistake is being made by Jodie Foster. Uh, to be fair, you can understand from the, her point of view where she has grown in this society. Oh, yeah. Where the earth is the other. Yeah. And, yeah, as far as she's concerned, they're, they're, a, um, they're motivated to come and destroy her world. But, but that's the thing, right? Like, they obviously have a lot of resources why not send down some health base? But because they're, they're then the people wouldn't want to come up. Well, no, that would just make them strong enough to come up here and rebel. Yeah, okay. Are you all right, crazy? All right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, if you want to see Jodie Foster in full flight of acting, that's great. Here, she's awesome. She's very sterile. She's very cold. She's very official, uh, and yeah, she's got a real. Uh, sense of this is the way it should be and that is delivered in this film. She's um, staunchly militaristic. She is. She's really great. I love it. Because she's quite often in her, in other films, Jodie Foster, she's very soft-spoken. That's her thing. That's because she's got that accent. Yeah, but in this, she's very clear and dominant with her voice. Doesn't doesn't yell, but very clear and dominant with the way she comes across. So, yeah. Anyway, to me... Her kind of planning the coup is leading into break two, but the actual lead into break two is that Max and his friend decide to approach Spider and do that deal. Yes. So the deal is, 
you know, like we want to get to Elysium. So that that's what I mean. So him, so before that in the debate, him finding out that he's got five days to live. I love that robot goes, you've got five days to live. These tablets will, again, the tablets, just chucks them we'll, tablets. We'll make them bearable. Bearable, you know. And they just chucks and drops them on him. There's no. After that, you will, uh, you, it will make it bearable until you die. Yeah, until you die in five oh. days or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so he, but there's a, there's a bit of scene, a couple of scenes in between that, but really the debate there for him is like, does he want to actually live, right? Mm. And he decides he does. He wants to go to Elysium. And maybe sticking off your theme, I think he does notice that tattoo that he's got, the shitty tattoo of Freya mm. and him. There might be a we, shot of that we, when he's we vomiting. We also, and- at this sort of point where we're seeing Max learning of five days and so yeah. on, we find that Frey's daughter is sick and is dying. Yeah, yeah. So it's all the pieces that suddenly come together to, to crystallize and you go, ah, okay, so now he's got to get to Elysium. Somehow mm. he has to get Frey and her daughter to Elysium. Yeah. And he's got to do all that within five days. And I think actually now that you've just said that, I saw it, but in my head, that's the B story is, he, is the daughter. Mm. So the daughter, it's not a love, because B stories don't always have to be a love story. It's whether she's going to make it, whether she's going to survive. Did you know also Chappie had five days? Yeah, there you go. So is, yeah. this, is this something that oh, Neil likes is the mm. five-day time clock? How long did District 9, like from... When he was doing the eviction think, yeah. notice, he yeah. gets sprayed all the way through to the very end. That was only a matter was, of... I think it was 48 hours, wasn't it? That something? was only a matter of a couple of days. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm sure it was 48 hours for that one. Maybe he learnt from that and he wanted to push it a bit more. Yeah, give, give, have a bit <laughs> give of time, a bit some more downtime. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so also, um, I, I picked the opening... Of, so I picked the debate as being, will I actually do this you know, job yeah. for Spider or will I try to find another way? He says, yes. And I said the start of Act 2 is when he wakes up from the surgery. So the surgery is his choice. He goes, yes, okay, I'll do it. And he, you know, gets this, is it going to be anesthetic? (laughs) Is it going to be anesthetic? No. (laughs) Um, And he gets chopped up. You see, that's why I don't try to do, um, that was meant to be a uh, sort of a, a Latin Jamaican accent. It's just, it really wasn't. No, it wasn't. So I'm sorry. It sounded like Count. It's very backyard, backyard <laughs> very backyard, your accent. And in this scene, it's very backyard operation. But yeah, I mean, I I think so. I think to me, it's like the choice to go into act two is him basically realizing like, oh, take us to Elysium. Okay, I'll take you to, I'll give you a ticket to Elysium, but you've got to do this deal. Like to me, that's just like, okay. Because like the, the fun and games start then. That's where fun he, and games. And he so, gets his Mad Max yeah. cars. He, he chooses his crew. Yeah. He, he gets given the, here's your He's weapons. Got your superpower. Amazing weapons. Uh, and you've got to go and get, do a Johnny Mnemonic and yeah. suck someone's brain data. <laughs> and he's, he's kind of gone back to what he was like, right? Like he's going to steal shit. Yeah, he's, so he's, he's, gonna... he's actually going back in his character. So he's trying. He tried to be the good guy. Yeah, and society was like, no, 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 no. We we killed you in a bad accident. We go, you would die because you were trying to do the right thing. Now go back to stealing stuff. Yeah, which it's because it, the irony being that, uh, and probably this is what he was noticing as a character is that on his way to that work, that guy, his his buddy who he takes on this mission, asks him if he wants yeah. to. Yeah, rejoin. Yeah, there's a there's a sweet job. Yeah. He's no no I'm doing the right thing now. Yeah. The right thing. Ironically, had he said, Yeah, sure. Yeah. And ditched work and gone off, he would be in a better position. Yes. <laughs> no worse off, certainly. He wouldn't be yeah. irradiated. Yeah. But anyway, maybe he wouldn't have the motivation. So the fun and games have decided to um get this 
boss Armadine Corp CEO John Carlyle. Carlyle. And, um, Such an evil boss man's name, isn't it? We've, before that little scene set up is that Jodie Foster has asked him to help her with a bit of a coup and he can do that by rebooting Elysium. And isn't this an interesting science fiction element as well? Yeah. Is that Elysium is run by mostly by automation yeah. and robots. Yeah. And the government is a programmed data file. Yeah. As it were. You know, like who the president <laughs> yeah. is and who all the people are and who the citizens are yeah. is all in this artificial intelligence that runs the station. Yeah. So essentially you can just rewrite the code and hack the government. Hack the government, hack the whole station. Which may actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it. And so that's Jodie Foster's plan and so she gets this the the head of the corporation um to do it and he's gonna do a brain dump so he codes it, sticks it in his brain and that just so happens they choose that as the target for Matt Damon because to that's attack. Matt's, that was Matt's boss who yeah. he saw looking through the yeah. window at him. There was no yeah. sympathy from him. So yeah, he's like, oh, geez, here we go with this white shut down and not running. And I mentioned it before. This guy doesn't just have a shuttle that's a regular shuttle up to Elysium. He's got like a BMW version. No, it's an like EB, a, an Ernesto Bugatti. Okay. There's even in the colours and you know, styling yeah. of the Veyron, which right. was right. popular at the time. I'm not a car guy, but that's, a, that's the, you know, I could tell as a flash car in a spaceship idea yeah um, which was cool and, and also he he's got gold plated droids like yeah his, he's his got the, he's got his special two robots that um you know that protect him from the filthy factory workers and Look, when you've got to drive around with your own like four robotic guards yeah. like that isn't there some point where you think there's something wrong here. Yeah. <laughs> There's something basically wrong. There's something a little bit if off I here, know, right? if, if it's obvious to me that if I don't have these guys, I'm in mortal danger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's anyway, just- yeah. Anyway, they take off and with that, you know, this is where we get some cool, more cool, cool military weaponry. You know, Matt Damon fires this thing that locks onto the Bacatti and kind of then fires it out yeah, of the sky. Yeah, I, I know like, they, they've got like networked weapons. Like yeah. he's programming it on a laptop and yeah. it blips on the thing and, yeah. his, and his bullets are these special like detectory multiple, thingos that explode and yeah. do things. And Yeah, they do more than just the regular bullets do yeah. now. So it's great. Yeah, I, it's great. It's really good. To, anyway, they have this, they have a great fight scene with the two robots when, it cra- when the spaceship crashes. Um, and with that, we've got Kruger being called back on the duty, mm. and um, he's coming down with his boys. His boys, the boys, yeah. they're the old boys. So they managed to get the data of the head, but then there's a, a, a battle where we introduce Kruger and it becomes a more uh, personally involved fight because yeah. fighting against robots is a bit sterile. Yeah. And this one here, there was some sweating and grunting. Yeah. And this is where the real samurai Ronin thing comes in because mm. he's he's fighting, and you get this anime touch where. Uh, we said that Max has got this special gun which explodes out in front of people, mm. but Kruger has his shield and he, the stance he takes with a shield and his blasting rods is a very anime, yeah. uh, you know, standing against the onslaught sort of yeah. thing as he sly gets pushed back by the bullets, yeah. uh, but he's not killed. It's it's great. And separate to that, there's a fair bit of, you know, explosive special effects, but camera-wise, Neil hops up another level here, I think, in his point of view shooting. Did you notice that there's a bit with Matt Damon here and he he only does it a couple of times throughout the film. I I figured that it probably took a fair bit to achieve is that we sort of have, it's almost like there's a camera strapped to Matt Damon's back 
and it's kind of about a meter behind him and it moves in the same vibrational steps as mm. Matt Damon. So it's a very first point of shooter almost uh, point of view. So it's it's point of view to an extreme. And I almost thought, oh, I'm like, look, I don't know if that's been done in another movie. I'm not huge. I, you know, recently I haven't been watching lots and lots of action films. Correct mm. me if I'm wrong. This was 2013. But it's almost like, I was like, oh, is this a bit of a Wachowski moment here? Is he like decided to up the ante and kind of try to create a, a I, difference I think in I have that seen special effects. something like that, but I yeah. don't know if it was before or after this, this. film. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, I don't know. You'd imagine now it could be more common because it's maybe a bit done more in the computer, but. Yeah, I think he definitely, that fight scene with Kruger and Matt Damon, it, it, there's a step up in the way that that's shot. So just notice that. There's a great battle scene. The weaponry is all on thing. Kruger stabs, manages to stab um, Max, Matt Damon. Uh, Matt Damon manages to get away, but when he fires that sort of multiple bullet gun thing, <laughs> Um, and then with that, he's hunting them with these. Send out the girls. You send out the girls, and they're just a whole bunch of drones. They look like Roombas. Yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, which is probably pretty relevant for 2013. So, so I was thinking we're getting pretty close to the the midpoint here because he, um, you know, we've had this fun and games. Like it was really cool that the heist, basically, like like the Chappy heist. This, again, yeah. there's this heist. But then it it all went wrong. His yeah. friend that he brought along yeah. gets stabbed by the samurai sword, which Kruger inexplicably has. Yeah. I think because it's just cool. And I think Kruger sees himself as a bit of a uh, you know, masterless Ronin yeah. samurai. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's wandering through. So we've got the imagery of him wandering through. It's dusk. The sun is literally setting, has set on him and it's dark. And he's stabbed, he's bleeding, he's staggering. And I, I like that. I thought... Uh, all of the other action was in that bright, hard light. Yeah. And now we've got this sort of soft, dark, you know, streets yeah. where he's wandering along uh, and he, he staggers and falls down by the hospital and waits for Frey to, to pop on out. Yeah, and save him. Um, for me, it's the midpoint is actually a little bit after this, as in I feel it's she does save him. She does yep. patch him up. He then, the next day or whatever it is, he goes to Spider and realizes that he has something in the head that's worth value. Yeah. And it's that moment that he's like then knowing that value, he kind of takes a bit more control there. So it's almost like a, and this is what some midpoints to me Mm. can be, is they're that false victory. So the false victory here for him is, oh, I've got the power. You're going to let me up to Elysium. No, because you could well sort of say this, um, his grenade uh, threat what do you call it? Gambit. Yeah, that could have also his been a false Gambit victory as well, right? kind of the result of him going, he's got the power. Yeah, yeah. And now we're going to get the the bad guys moving in is literally Kruger and his crew capturing yeah, that's right. that's uh, Matilda and, yeah. and Frey. And yep. then he doesn't know that. And so when he goes, haha, I'm so cool. And yeah. come and get me, man. And they, they come down and he holds a grenade and Kruger's like, oh, yeah, right, mate. No, come on, no, Not no. the problem. I will take you up there. You just <laughs> yeah. come on in yeah. here. We'll take you up. We'll and save you. He, and you can see Max is looking a little bit, okay, that yeah. seemed a bit easy. And, of course, when he gets in there, here he is holding a grenade and he's in close quarters with his um, yeah, it's the tables friend and, turned, yeah. and her daughter. And suddenly he's like, you know, this and you can see Kruger looking at him going, oh, yeah, are you going to use your grenade now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But but true to his word, takes yeah. him up. Yeah. Which is cool because then spiders, yeah, the, the, the flight band gets lifted. Yeah. 
And so I lifted, where's, uh, where's Max? Because he put that little tracker on yeah. him and he's flying up to Elysium. And you got to think, Spider at this point is going, that crazy son of a bitch. He, yeah, he just walked out of here and said, I'm going up to Elysium. And now he's up. And he's going he's up to Elysium. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was kind of like Spider's saving the cat a little bit that he wants to get there to actually help people. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Spider's, I, that's what I felt. I felt early in the film, he's almost like this black. Oh, they call them coyotes uh, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're, they are taking advantage, but here it starts to reveal that he actually does want to help. He's actually maybe. a bit of a, almost like a... a a disillusioned rebel leader, yeah, you know, yeah, like he wanted to 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 hold the revolution, but he just ended up. He's just found himself running film festivals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love that, you know, like even I love how Kruger toys with Max, like he's you know touching Frey and he's mm. kind of caressing her, and you know he's deliberately trying to oh, like. You've got him, a sick girl. She's you, sick. You know, you know? <laughs> and then with that, they attack him, and the grenade goes flying around the cabin, and. Max is still in his half android suit thing, and so he kicks one game, goes straight into the driver, who now like spirals this ship. Mm. You know, they're, they're in space, and but it's spiraling the, out of control. The shot you see where Kruger's face and, is yeah, the ripped grenade open. Grenade and his face—that was. I, and I remember this time I was like, "Oh!" And I was like, "Ah, I remember that now." Like I remember yeah, his face it's, getting ripped off. And I forgot. It's a very brutal. Well, see, this is also a really good indication of the technology difference because. Yeah. These soldiers don't go. Oh well, he's dead because no. like he's he looked pretty dead. Yeah, because he was actually still kind of breathing. Yeah, and they went, oh, his brain's intact. Yeah, and so they they just hooked him over that. to the healing thing and yeah. press it. And yeah, literally 20, 30 seconds, it had rebuilt his whole face. He's going to be this day. Your boss is not going to like this. <laughs> but you notice his skin was yeah. nice and smooth and yes. white and clean. Whereas before he had um, scars on his face. And he was, it was grubby as, yeah. as all heck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Um, so they, Kruger gets restored. Meanwhile, on Elysium, Max and uh, Max kind of saves Freya and the do- his daughter. Yeah, well, they get captured, and which is, again, part of this, you know, um, bad guys moving in. Yeah, yeah. So and they're going to extract the data, and Max will die. So this is, yes. a, you know, it's a it's a good things are getting worse, um, and possibly uh, this is uh, all is lost. I would say that the fact is that they're going to extract this data, and he's going to die. So it's going to be the death of him. Um, but he overpowers the scientists. The good old scientists always get, you know, it's like Total Recall, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Stab yeah. them with the wrist thing. Rips um, up, but yeah. he rips up and uses his strength and overpowers the two scientists. Um, and then he does a deal. And so this is quite a good sort of, to me, heading into uh, the actual... Oh, no, but actually before that, sorry. Sorry, in the Dark Knight of the Soul. Yeah, because that's the thing. I'm jumping over a bit there, actually. This is where Delacorte F- Foster comes in to kind of like take control back. Yes. But Kruger's like... He's very pissed. He's very pissed and he and he goes, do you know what? You know, you're politicians and this is where we have this crossover, don't we? Like the, and politicians do this. This could be a very simple. The Americans have known to do this. I'm sure the Australian government has done it too. But this idea of like putting a mercenary in control. Yeah. And then the mercenary suddenly acts like a mercenary. He's not acting like a, not looking at the world in the bigger He's, picture. He doesn't like, have national doesn't interests. doesn't have the national interests. He's just a soldier. And so then suddenly he turns around and stabs her in the neck. And, um, you know, it's a great, you know, uh, power uh, play. And there. then she he says to his buddy, clear, clear the, you know, uh, politicians out of here. Yeah. 
And the guy goes, righto. <laughs> and, and you're thinking, yeah, he's, he's just going to right, everyone clear out. <laughs> no, he just opens the door, he just chucks a grenade in. Because yeah. <laughs> well, he's like, I'm going to enjoy this, you know, yeah. and he like just goes in and throws in the grenades. Yeah. Uh, Causes chaos. That's what it does actually yeah. as well. And uh, yeah, they're just soldiers being soldiers really. You know? Well, but, yeah, as you say, I think it's more the mercenaries being mercenaries, yeah. which is yeah. that step beyond, because the soldiers we are they generally will, still pretty loyal yeah, to, yeah, their, to their national, their, yeah. their nation or yeah. whatever. But anyway, so Jodie Foster or Delacourt does slowly die from her wounds there in front of Frey and that. So sorry, there's that. And then Frey's taken to the, I don't know, and then Kruger and that leave to, to do their coup. They're going to take over. They're like, oh, I'll make this mine. Yeah. You know, that was your good plan you had. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he, he starts to you know instigate that chaos and Max finds, that's when Max, sorry, finds Frey. So there's a there's a bit of a win there and to me this is actually heads to break three because yes. what he does is he gets on the wireless and says the good old wireless uh to spider look i i've got a deal you know like you yeah. take care of frey get her to a medical bay you know get her yeah. daughter to a medical bay and you can have what's in my head and take over the place yes you know you can you can reboot the yeah because that's that's kind of the the plan as, as yeah. you're heading out into Act Three, where yeah, you, he's got a new oh, plan now. Okay, everything's crap. He, but he escapes and jumps out, mm. and he goes, "Okay, here's the plan. I can at least save, you know, Matilda, yep. and I can at least, you know, at this stage, I think he's just, I just, I can save Matilda yeah. and Frey, and and we'll see. And he just makes his deal. Yeah, and he goes for it. It's not until well, I think he he does say to Max, everyone will become a suit. That's the that's the real payoff isn't it yeah. it's like, so Frey's daughter can use the bed yes if you reboot the system and everyone is just now so it's not like he was going Elysium to save himself kind of yeah. thing you know that was his oh save myself save myself now it's like do you know what I can save everyone else you know yeah. and so to me it's a very clear plan so there's a bit of you know dodging and diving and, and bullets being thrown and a little bit of you know taking out one of those other bad guys in this you know sequence and then, of course, we hit a climax, what the great writers talk about. You fight the bad guy at the top of a mountain. Well, in this context, we're at some big service station. Oh, see, this is where we got more of like this. Like a bit of a Star Wars Darth Vader we, Luke got, at the top of a We've got more tower. of a, uh, a samurai coming in here. Yeah. Did you notice all of the Sakura blossoms, like the, the yeah, cherry blossoms? Yeah, I did notice them. Floating about the yeah. place when they're coming in here. It's extremely Japanese. So, Because, you know, in, in the Japanese uh, samurai movies and certainly in Japanese culture, I guess the Sakura, Sakura blossom is um, a, a symbol of the fleeting nature of life. Mm. And that you must enjoy and appreciate what life you have, mm. which is always this whole thing with the, the samurai is always uh, prepared for death, which is not really to say that they're actually trying to kill themselves, but rather they they recognize that every moment of their life is a precious moment of their life. Yeah. So if they, which means that, that at any time that they die, they have enjoyed and used, made use of each moment up to that point. Not so they're always prepared. pressure for the samurai. <laughs> and and so, yeah, so when, when Kruger is out uh, and uh, uh, Max is there and the Sakura blossoms are all floating around, it's just that really strong symbol. same symbol yeah. that you see in the samurai films and, yeah. and the anime and so forth where it's yeah. like uh, this is the decision point. And if you're talking about the Hong Kong films, you're looking at who's that guy, Sam, Sam Lee or Hung Lee? What's his name? He did the um, Mission Jet, Impossible Jet 2? Lee. No, Jet, no, not no. Jet Li. The, the uh, director, he's particularly known for 
two guns. Oh, it's um, the face-off guy, right? Yeah. Um, and John Woo. John Woo, yeah. I was yeah. getting Jet yeah. Lee and John Woo mixed yeah, up. John Woo, the director. John yeah. Woo. He, his view of this is always the doves or the birds scattering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the, you know, the birds are scattering. It's, it's like the life is danger and danger. Yeah, yeah, yeah But yeah. anyway, the, the security blossoms. And so I was really picking up on this because he throws his little ninja star and blows that guy up, you know, and yeah. he's... he's Preferred weapon is this samurai sword. Like he sees himself as this sort of uh, lone warrior mm. without a master, and then yeah. he's decided to become his own master. Yeah, and he has a good. So they have a real good brutal battle at the top of the mountain. And this is so what we've been wanting. Yeah, yeah, and they're both. He's got a suit as well now, and you know Matt Damon's got his crude suit. But, That's but always you know, a good. You know, his suit's a little bit better. You know? Yeah, his suit's way better. You know, and this is the thing, and he's the stronger fighter. Matt Damon's slow. He's on his last pill. We see him have his last pill. So you know he's on his way out, yeah. and um, they just have this real good brutal fight with a nice surprise where Kruger kind of takes advantage and then and then loses advantage. Oh, you almost got me! Yeah. <laughs> and then he and then just as he, and then he does kind of I think stab him or something and he, gets he him hooks the, edge. the carabiner. So then onto he hooks his... onto his thing and you know he's like, well, I'm going. He does the old, you know, I'm going down, you're going down. You know, sacrifice again. He's the crazy mercenary, isn't yeah. he? And uh, but then Matt Damon rips out that thing that was plugged into him, right? So yeah. he kind of like yanks that out of his body, which would have been very painful. And chucks um, him over the side. Chucks he, him over he the explodes side. most comically, I found. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> one of those explosions. There yeah. was no big fanfare. It's just poof, yeah, he's all in bits. And then Matt um, Damon comes and looks at his locket yeah. as he gets plugged in. Yeah, he gets plugged in. Yes, and and there's a there's a fight going on in the uh, near the life bed, and, and yeah, finally, yeah. Daughter is Matilda's laid down, and yeah, and it just goes zip zip. Yeah, but but just before, so just as Max he says to Spider, like Spider's like, you know, you're gonna die. And again, it's it's a great bit of writing this because he gives him the keyboard, like to to say yeah, yes. like take it because again, it's like always Spider is like, yeah, I'll do it. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like it's you need the character to make that choice, yes. you know, and and he does. It, he it also speaks. Choice. The, of, it gives you that hope that Spider isn't just yeah. the you know gangster trying yeah, to make out. Right. Yeah. Because a gangster trying to make out could easily just go, yeah, okay, you plug, duke. Yeah. Oh, yeah, by the way, you're probably going to, oh, oh, it looks like you're dead already. Yeah, and th- in this moment, you know, the president breaks in and so Max is dead and you're right, Frey's daughter gets zipped and healed uh, by the healing bed um, and Spider's kind of being clawed by the, you know, the soldiers and to me, this was the bit that was really sweet, I think, that Blonkov clept in there, is that then the robots kind of, they get rebooted. The, the whole mm. core shuts down and gets rebooted. And it, it says, like, all, citizen, all citizens of Elysium, you know, updating, um, you know, updating new list. Yeah. Oh, suddenly there's thousands of people that need our attention. And this is what I really kind of thought was very sweet was, you know, the robots just cut, you know, they just they just get to it, don't they? They, oh. just, they just get to work because that's what it is. It's just data. And so they just start and even the, the robots come in and they arrest, you know, those guards. And so again, know, like in Chappie, like, it's the robots who are the empathetic the, yeah, ones. Yeah, they're that, the empathetic in this point. And that's the thing. The robots the right are very different. And we see the ships take off from Elysium and come down to planet Earth and, you know the people with all sickness and children. Well, see, I was—I did a few calculations on the back of a napkin, as it were, of this yeah. healing bed. Yeah, it seems to take about thirty seconds for yeah. a cycle, yeah. and it could, in that time, it could either just give you a little, yeah, nip and tuck, yeah, health health treatment, or reconstruct your entire head. Yeah, 
or just cure you of um, some sort leukemia of yeah, yeah. or whatever she had. Yeah. You know, like 30 seconds. So it worked out you could treat with just one bed alone, you could treat 2,000 people a week. Yeah, right. Like you just have that in a hospital. Yeah. That's yeah. all you would need in that yeah, hospital. Yeah, yeah. yeah 2,000 yeah. people a week of zip zap. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, and so that'd be one. And one, we see that there's a stack of them with the robots. So, so that's like, yeah. I know, like a couple hundred thousand a year. Yeah, yeah. People. Yeah. Easy, so easy. if you just took down. 10, 20 beds, a yeah. few months' time, like in a couple of years' time, you could healed. have basically healed everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the bookend here is it's a repeat of the start. We go back to Max as a little boy with the nun and he's looking at the planet. Yeah. And it's, so it's a reminder of us, you know, and, he, and uh, we see um, Frey, I think, is she running or something and jogging? Got, like things are a little bit better, aren't they? Things are a lot better. Yeah. At least for her. And it, t- it takes us back to, you know, like things are better. Things are better compared to... The, it's almost like the dream is fulfilled at the end sort of idea. That's the bookend. Okay, so it. that's our main plugins. Lots of style from Neil Blomkoff that I could see throughout. Great camera shots, interesting movement, some really interesting acting and chock-a-block full of... Sci-fi elements, and yeah, that, that right. use of robots to both uh, dehumanize the bureaucracy, yeah. but also then at the end that change, which is yeah. to say, the robots are also the Could primary change helper. Yeah, uh, you know, of the good side of humanity. New pro- you just program them to be good. They just say, "Be good now." Yeah. And they go, oh, okay. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> Not a problem. So that brings us to the end. So, what about the ladder? Now, I think last week I did do last episode. Sorry, I did this a little bit different with Chappie. But then after I watch this today, I want to kind of flip around my order a little bit, and I want people to have a look at these three films in a row. Look, I, I so had that's this, the same, as, and that's why <laughs> I suggested we do Elysium next. Yeah, yeah. With so because I was I haven't watched Chappie close enough to District Nine. District Nine did about. A year ago or something. Yeah, yeah. But that's pretty close. Yeah, it's close enough. And uh, that I, I I saw some of these elements that were the same and bit, mm. I thought, you know, it'd be really interesting to see Elysium. Yeah. And you know, so we can actually sort of do a bit of a pickup of a yeah. director's style and yeah. the themes they like to explore, the themes that seem to give them passion. That's and right. He likes his robots and he likes his um the the fact that robots are neither good nor evil, they yeah. how they're programmed, but also that that it, Empathy, the, the fact that if you just are able to consider other people's positions for a bit, mm. yeah, maybe you can get on better with people. That's right. And I mean, his films, are, you know, that theme in his film is obviously what he wants to develop is about those classes and racism, but being put into that sci-fi element. So that would be a cracker of a night, I reckon, if you watch District 9, Elysium and Chappie. The, the, the Blomkamp <laughs> Yeah, marathon. the Blomkamp Marathon. Do it. Do it with a friend or do it on your own on a Friday night or Saturday night, whatever. Sit down, binge on it, and really notice what a filmmaker does because you will see um, a real style through those films. So check it out and let us know where you, whether you agree or whether you'd rather mix it up on your ladder. Okay, this film, as, we, as I mentioned, had lots of science fiction elements. So what about a science element? Whoa! Actually, we've we've sort of covered a few of these other ones. We've done yeah. exoskeletons. Uh, mm. I, di- I haven't done exploding ninja throwing stars <laughs> and how face it, like, reconstruction, face surgery instantly yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, I got. I have to say, if I had one of those healing beds, it'd be every morning. You'd wake up. You go, oh, you go lie in that. Ba-ding, oh, oh, ready for work. <laughs> 
That's better than a cup of coffee. Oh, it would you know, be. Totally. Every morning. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be fantastic. Okay, so no, it was the, the space station mm. because uh, a bit 2001-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, even the shuttle leaving at the start, it had that same sort of thing. And you notice the similarity here is this spoke and wheel arrangement. Yeah. And so I was thinking, yeah, what, where does that come from? Mm. And what's the benefits of it? And why would you choose that? Yeah. And you can immediately think of a couple benefits. Uh-huh. Uh, like, you know, by having it as a ring, it's a nice, easy shape to, you know, have strong. If you have square, you've got corners and corners are weak. Rings, nice and strong mm-hmm. out in space. But the other, the, the most interesting thing I thought about this was I'm going to ask, and the audience can do this, you can press pause before I tell the answer. When do you think a rotating ring space station was first proposed? What sort of year? 1952. False. You'd be wrong. 1903. Oh, wow. This is before World War I. This is before aeroplanes were really Mm. doing much. Okay, so... So it's. I think it's. I think it's an interest, interesting story. It was a, a a fellow Russian guy. This is back when the Russians were really kicking many scientific goals, uh, and before the World War One and World War Two, there was a bit of a revolution thing. I don't know if anyone's heard about that. The whole communist Russia, but uh, <laughs> back then there's this guy Konstantin Tchaikovsky, right? And he was this. Um, almost a, a reclusive scientist, if you like. He, he was like about 200 kilometers out from Moscow, mm. which in my mind in 1903, that basically means you're in the woods. Mm-hmm. You know, Russians out there listening, uh, you know, probably in a few years' time when the internet's turned back on. <laughs> but if you could correct me, 200 kilometers out of Moscow, I'm going to assume is pretty rural, mm. uh, much like 200 kilometers out of, you know, any Australian city is pretty rural. Yeah. Uh, he... It was interesting because he put forward first papers he put forward to the the Russian community of scientists was about uh, gas laws mm. and ga- and and how to look at gases, yeah. which was yeah you know, it's pretty good except that had been sort of actually released and discussed about fifty years prior yeah. or twenty five years prior and he wasn't original on that although he developed that himself yep. without reference to these other things so he was actually kind of a pretty clever clever guy mm. and he got really interested in um how we can move you know transportation yeah. and you know he was looking at these aeroplanes and aerodynamics he was uh you know getting uh i think he was the first one to build a wind tunnel yeah, to right. start studying the aerodynamic shapes of spheres and cylinders and so forth mm-hmm. and he uh, came up with a little model for a um a metal hulled dirigible like a, a blimp yeah, but not right. a blimp, yep. a dirigible. Mm-hmm. Blimps are soft skin. It's, you know, so it was a little metal thing. There's only a couple of them ever got made to any real extent, but uh, the idea is quite good because you end up with this nice, rigid, uh, impermeable surface, whereas cloth doped with aluminium and magnesium, in case you haven't heard about this thing called the Hindenburg, not the, the greatest of things to put in contact yep. with you know, hydrogen and electricity. Uh-huh. It's poo. Uh, but... Yeah, so he was he was really into this, and he wanted to know about um, how, how you might live in space because he's yeah. looking at different places. You know, you're flying in a balloon. Oh, that's cool. What about in space? And so he came up with this idea. Well, you'd have to have like a, a rotating wheel, yeah, and live on the inside 
because that would give you gravity. Mm -hmm. But then there was, uh, to take this further, we had another fellow. He was a, uh, an ethnically Slovenian Austro-Hungarian officer. I'm not sure how that exactly goes together. Mm -hmm. Geopolitics and so forth in that area were kind of a little bit shaky at the time. Right. Uh, I think the area has, has had a few country and place name changes, but uh -huh. Herman Potocnik. Ooh. And correct me my pronunciation on that, but... Don't mind that name. Or Hermann. He actually had this book called, and let me just uh, read it because it's foreign sounding. Problem de Befahrung des Weltraums. Don't know why you have to put the accent on the, top of the The problem of space travel. <laughs> so he was really interested in the problem of space travel. Right. So and remember, this is not yet in the 50s. We no, were still... 100 years Rockets of, hadn't even years. been yeah. done much with here. So he's looking at the space travel. One of the, the problems he said was uh, it, there's no gravity up there, or very little gravity. Mm. And it's, you know, you've got to carry so much. You know, how do you... How do you launch missions to future places? And so he said, "Well, here's this idea: we, we can make a, a ring, yeah, like old um, Tchaikovsky has said, yeah." And he put forward a thirty meter diameter sort of ring, so uh -huh. not yeah. huge, yeah, yeah, more like two thousand one Space Odyssey, you know, when they're they're heading off to Jupiter, you know, that sort of size, like yeah. a fairly noticeable curvature, and and you know, would only be for a few astronauts to get about in, yeah. So we move forward to the, the 50s then. There's a villain named uh, Werner von Braun. I <laughs> uh, don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was a Nazi SS. He sort of worked on the V2 rockets that killed many, many people and caused much horror. Mm. Uh, the Americans just said, yeah, okay, you're now an American called um, Werner. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Werner. I remember this story. Come across. We're just going to forget that you're in the SS and that you, you know, designed weapons of mass destruction because we want you on our rocket program yep. to get into space, beat the Russians. Mm. And he and Willie Lay, uh, who was a, another German not so notorious, came across and they started working. Uh, and they put forward a 76-metre diameter wheel, which would spin at three revolutions per minute, which gives you about one-third Earth gravity. Right. And they would use this then as a launching point for future missions. Hmm. So the idea was that they would, um, before they get to the moon, because they haven't yeah. got to the moon yet, yep, yep. they'd have this thing up there, and that would be like a staging point and a permanent um, station. And because it's got that gravity, it, you have a bit of normality there. Yeah. Yep. So that was nice. 1959, uh, NASA was kind of interested in this sort of thing. They're going for our Mercury program to get people in space. We should probably put some sort of space station up there. Yeah. Uh, the Russians beat them to it. And so they went, okay, don't worry about that. Do anything you can to get anyone in space doing anything at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because obviously space stations are very difficult to get into space. Yeah, yeah. As we know. And we, and we know that, and they end up going to the moon without a space station, without a staging program, because it was it was a space race. They were trying to get there first. Yeah. They really had to demonstrate that um, the United States was doing the right things, and mm. that Russia was not. Yes, um, it seems a bit strange, but I, I guess it was important at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not old enough to understand the importance of it. I can imagine it, but I don't really understand it. In 1975, NASA had a bit of a powwow at Stanford University. And they sort of 
wanted to, amongst the many things they discussed, one of them was this idea of a permanent settlement in space. Mm. Not just a little staging point, but a settlement, mm. like a city. Yep. 10,000 people, 100,000 wow. people, that sort of size yeah. thing. And I said, what would this take? So they took this um, Von Braun wheel, the 76-meter one, and they said, yeah, that's, that's kind of a little bit dinky. We're not going to get what we want to have. They designed this 1.8-kilometer wow. diameter wheel, <laughs> quite considerably larger, yeah, yeah. to hold about 10,000 people. I want that, but bigger. And it would uh, <laughs> get me the big one. And it would rotate at one revolution per minute, and give 0.9 to a bit less than 1G of gravitational yeah, equivalence right. okay, okay. through centripetal acceleration, mm. which is because we all know centrifugal force is not a real force. It's actually the reaction to centripetal acceleration, just mm. you know, because I'm a nerd. Yes. And I've probably said it wrong even still. <laughs> so if you're an engineer out there who understands centripetal acceleration and the centrifugal force, get in touch and feel free to correct me. I love to learn. So this was this is called the Stanford Ring, and there's an interesting point here because it part of this discussion was um, a guy was it Gerard O'Neill? Um, Good old Gerard, I think it was. Well, no, well we do know, yeah, Gerard O'Neill. Yeah. One of the feature films that was submitted to our film festival mm. was The High Frontier, yeah. which is a documentary about Gerard O'Neill because he put forward a couple of other spaceship designs. Yeah, I was going to say his stuff was all about the cities in space. Yeah, yeah. He put forward some designs which was more sort of a, an elongated sphere mm. with an equatorial area with the highest yeah. gravity and it's yeah. lesser gravity on the out. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, uh, and uh, awesome idea. You know, maybe we'll discuss this documentary in, in greater depth at another yeah, time. I but, think so. But looking at this wheel, because that's where we had an Elysium, and and the wheel idea, the Stanford wheel, as it's called, it had a covered uh, section, mm-hmm. whereas Elysium was about forty kilometers across mm-hmm. and was uncovered. Yeah, yeah. And the Stanford wheel was going to use mirrors to get sunlight in, yep. and it would have a mixture of suburban and agricultural things. So yeah. It, it would be a full thing, and it would, they reckon it would be about ten million tons, mm. which, which brings us to the point of, can we create something like this? Yeah, it's a good now, question. The Stanford wheel, I don't know, like the von Braun wheel, seventy-six meters. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's feels in, achievable. Incredibly, you know, I mean the uh, the International Space Station is kind of in the. The, the livable area, I think, from memory, has been about up to 40-odd metres. Mm. Um, the, the, I think if you include other bits and like aerials and so forth, it gets to about 70. Yeah. I seem to think 70 metres somewhere in that region. But that's like aerials and yeah, yeah. tethers and you know, not really livable stuff. So we could definitely do it, you know, and I say that. The couple of problems, of course, would be uh, to get 10 million tonnes up of a Stanford wheel... Uh, we we could do it. The technology and the materials essentially exist. Yeah. But the expense of shifting ten million tons into orbit mm. uh, is I don't know. If there's any nation or combination of nations that would have the budget to do that mm. because the payoff is is not very great. <laughs> yeah. Like okay, now you got this massive space station that ten thousand people can live on permanently. Mm. That's kind of cool, I yeah. guess, but. Wouldn't it just be cheaper just to take all that money 
and pick 10,000 of the poorest people and just give it to them yeah. <laughs> because honestly, yeah, you'd, you'd probably get, you know, turn into the scholarships, science scholarships yeah, yeah. and engineering scholarships, you'd get far more benefit out of that than you yeah, would out of this space station for thing. Sure. But there was plans to put a small rotating section on the International Space Station mm. and that, that was called whoo, uh, Nautilus X. That's the one. Mm. Nautilus X. So the idea was in the, in the 2010s, NASA was going, well, you know, this science fiction theory of a rotating gravitational wheel, like, yeah. it should work. But we've never had the opportunity to actually do it. Mm. So let's do it. Let's add a module to the ISS, yeah. which would be uh, like a sleeping quarters, which had gravity because yeah. it makes it so much easier for people to sleep when they've got gravity. Mm. Uh, you know, like they don't have heart problems. They don't have to float away. Yeah. All manner of things are solved by having a bit of gravity there. They they could eat their meals sitting on their beds like so mm. that they're not getting crap all through the space station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they sort of looked at it and they thought, yeah, it'd be kind of cool. The interesting thing was there was a conscious decision and they went, you know, given our budgets, we actually want microgravity because we find there's more experiments and more benefit from having a microgravity environment to do all our experiments. We kind of want to know what happens to people long-term in zero gravity. Yeah. Microgravity. Uh, So... Again, it was one of these, the expense of doing it mm. versus what's going to be learned from it was just not there. I mean, I think maybe in time, if we were going to genuinely try to get a base on the moon, mm. it would sort of, I feel it would make sense to have a staging that was um, more practical, less yeah. experimental. Like here's, it's got enough gravity. I don't know. You don't necessarily need one G, no. maybe 0.6. It's got enough gravity that people can walk around and, and use tools and work without, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. the clumsiness. Uh, That's for sure. Uh, but, you know, trying to pressurize a thing like that, the amount of materials, um, you know, not so much. But mm. in Elysium, they would have had to get um, probably asteroids in. I think... We spoke about asteroids did. Uh, a while back, and there's like a great big iron one, which, which basically has enough wealth to equal everything that's been produced in the world already. Yeah, and that's like that don't look up movie we looked at, which yeah. was, you know, that they that's what they got greedy about this asteroid coming that would be four hundred trillion dollars worth of raw yeah. materials, and yeah, maybe Elysium they got a hold of something like that hmm. with their robots. Yeah. And the robots brought it back, and then they were able to construct something. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if a 40-kilometer thing would be strong enough, like you'd be able to make material strong enough to hold together. Yeah. But they clearly had some pretty magical Advanced science fiction. Tech, yeah. So, yeah. So there yeah, you go. What... So, so that's it. So the spinning wheel thing, 1903, by wow. a Russian recluse who was just <laughs> quite clever. Yeah. That's basically a very inquisitive mind. He looked into hovercrafts. Blimps, aeroplanes, aerodynamics. Yeah, it was his jam. Um, you know, and then there's Potochnik, who uh, was the, the Austro-Hungarian uh, fellow. Yeah. He's, he's sort of known as, as one of the um, – it was his work that was the basis for a, a lot of – so he built it off all of the aeronautics of Tchaikovsky and our rocketry comes mm. from Potochnik. Yeah, right. So – and then, of course, uh, the Western world stole all of the uh, Nazis and... Um, Continued yeah, that work. 
beat the modern beat rocket. beat the world into space. You know, <laughs> so there you go. Some sometimes my number one takeaway from World War Two is sometimes you steal Nazis. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. All right. Very interesting idea of the circular Elysium space station. Mm. All right. That brings us to the end of Elysium. Oh, I was going to say because oh. Neil Blomkamp was supposed to do Halo. Yeah. Which is about a ring world. Yeah, right. Ah, there you go. Right. Connection. Rings. Anyway, yes, that brings us to the end. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, that's all right. Um, so it takes us to the end of Elysium. So please let us know what you thought. Uh, if you're listening to us on anywhere that you listen to podcasts, give us a rating, a review, share it around um, wherever you find us. Uh, also hit us up on our socials uh, and on our website. So we are on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram. Did I say Instagram? Uh, Twitter and find us there and let us know what you thought about Elysium yourself. Actually, we, we do have a YouTube channel too. Yeah, there's, that is there's a bit of promo stuff there from Phil. There is, yeah, and there'll be much more content coming very, very shortly. Yes. Um, but yeah, check us out, ask us questions, let us know what you think, let us know about a movie that you might want us to review. Uh, and yeah, we thank you for listening. Our next episode, sorry, next will episode be- inspired by someone who had presented to us. Mm. By Ben Young, a local yeah. WA director. Yeah. This was his uh, relatively big budget science yeah. fiction movie that he went off to Hollywood to do. Yeah. He learnt a lot of things and it's Extinction. Yes, It's it on is. Netflix. It is available on Netflix. Check it out. Uh, it does present some very interesting points and mm. has uh, a fascinating thing, point, you know, story to tell. Yeah, I haven't seen it before. You have. Oh, you haven't um, seen it? No, and we got oh. from Ben's chat on Saturday, you know, he showed us a bit of a, a mock-up version of the start. And he showed us the trailer and he sort of talked about the version differences between his version and the, the version the that's director's on Netflix. Cut. The good old director's cut kind of thing. So we'll probably be able to chat about those things and, and also um, let you know what we think about Extinction. So if you're following along at home, you know what's coming up. See ya. See you later.